Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, March 11th, 2021. By all accounts, the anniversary of COVID being what it has become, the beast was born. In this day, there's a lot of stuff happened, but in America, uh, this is incidental, but I remember it because today happens to be my birthday, and last t- this time last year, this day last year, I had family over, had some, had some family in town, actually. We're eating pizza in my living room, having a good time. And the text notifications, Tom Hanks has COVID, Rudy Gobert has COVID, Mm -hmm. the NBA is canceling the season, the WHO um, is declaring a national pandemic. My kids went to school the next day, and that was it for a year. Then they, no no more school, and Rebecca and I, before the show, we're spending a moment, um, it really, it did hit me today, like my birthday, I don't tend to care about my birthday that much, but it was a, the full year and what the year has meant really hit me with a wave of sadness that I knew was below there of what it's meant yeah. to do this year. And to be perfectly clear, no one's had a better responsible COVID experience than me. You know, everyone's healthy, kept their job. My kids have been really more, I'm going to start crying about it if I talk about them too much, more than I could ever ask them to do. We had Michelle's mother who helps us in the afternoons with the kids while we're working. Couldn't be better, but still the loss of experience and time and not seeing our friends and not seeing our family, my kids not seeing their friends, not doing the things like, again, I don't want to get too much into this, but here we go. Like my kids are like seven and nine, which is prime kid time. We were going to go to Y for anniversary. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff. And instead we're watching YouTube videos together on Friday nights and everyone's fine. And I hope all of you out there can take a moment to grieve, I guess, is kind of what's happening here, Um, and and reflect on it, because I think it's even hitting me harder, too, because the end is sort of in sight. You know, there's a a sort of emotional senioritis about stiff upper lipping and carrying on got me through a lot of it, and that's sort of coming to an end, because it feels like maybe I don't have to keep the, maybe I can start frowning, (laughs) you know, maybe I can start smiling, maybe I can do other things with my lips, show title, Uh, over over time. but it really did hit me hard today, and I'm, I think it's hitting a lot of people hard. I think it's hitting a lot of people today yeah, that's on this, that's, the, the generally acknowledged anniversary of COVID in the U.S. at least. That like deep realization that it's been a year has been a thing for me also. I can't imagine what it's like to have your, not only this day be your birthday, but as we were just saying before the show, like we all lost one birthday to COVID, but yeah. when your birthday falls right now, you're losing two. And I'm in the same boat. You know, my COVID has been by all accounts about as easy and privileged as a COVID situation can be. And yet the easiest, most privileged version is still very, very mm-hmm. hard. And I I don't know if you're listening to the show, if you're a person who keeps a journal, I'm a pretty regular journaler and I don't usually go backwards in them. It's mostly like just something that I do in the mornings that gets my mind. It's like how I get right for my day and get my head around what's happening in my life and process things. And I went, I did go back and I looked at the first couple of weeks of March and it's a doozy, mm. but it was really validating in a way of like, there's a there's a day where I'm telling my journal that the governor of Virginia declared a 30-day stay home, and Virginia's numbers are kind of behind the rest of the country so far. Ooh, now I'm getting choked up. And maybe... Mm. maybe these 30 days, like, will keep us in a good place and we can get ahead of this. And, you know, like, two weeks later, there's like, okay, now the stay home is extended into June. And watching... Like, I remember how it felt like it was changing every day or every hour and how stressful Mm -hmm. and anxiety provoking that was. But like going back and looking at the evidence, like really how much we all took in and how many things we had to adapt to and how quickly and how scary it was because we Mm. didn't know very much about it. 
was uh, it landed on me also like we have really endured some things in this past year and really lost some things even if the things you lost are like opportunity cost you know like i i just yeah. lost a year of travel or a year of joyful experiences with the people that i love that's a real thing to consider and mm -hmm. i think it bears it bears talking about in whatever ways that we can because as we i have the same emotional senioritis like bob who has a an underlying condition got diagnosed earlier this week and the wave of relief mm -hmm. that i had from the most important person in my life having that vaccine was a real indicator to me of what these how many more feelings there are going to be to go yeah <laughs> that's right i mean part of that survival instinct and i think to a lot of to degree those of us who've been treating this responsibly have been in a bunker mentality of different yeah. kinds and that's hard to unlatch right it, the, the beast does not come slink quietly out of the box that it's been kept in for this time um so i'm expecting big feelings for everyone involved um and it, the, the waves and the difference of experience, too, because it went from that day, we were going to go out to a teppanyaki restaurant, you know, where you sit around a communal table mm -hmm. and they've got the grill thing, which in hindsight was like maybe the worst thing you could do in a dinner setting is like have people throw food at you off their anyway, and you're sitting and they're like, okay, let's just stay in. Because I was like, and I remember saying to Michelle, am I being too cautious mm -hmm. to just want to stay home and just have it be, you know, smaller? Which what sweet summer child, and then then we went through this period of like April and the May where you we were worried about touching bags. Remember this yeah. for mm -hmm. delivery and stuff, and we didn't know, and we're washing our hands like you know like we've been touching tome or like the plague or something. And now we learned that that's not a vector, and all the things that have gone into it too. And the the processing is going to take some time. Um, and Michelle and I were talking about our kid's birthday coming up at the end of the month. You know, trying to feel like, is there something else we can, it's like, no, they're, we're not vaccinated. Here we are again. So I hope it's just a little bit longer and it feels like there's light at the end of the tunnel, but how long the tunnel is to get to the light for most of us mm -hmm. who haven't gotten a shot. Um, and it's still going to be some time. And then with your, if you've got kids or other reasons that it might be more difficult, um, we're not in the middle. It almost, it, today would be easier if we were in the middle of it in a way you know, or, or be differently handled, but we're not. So I guess that's enough of that. Let's do a sponsor and try to regroup here a little bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must-read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edge with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, fated romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexander Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. 
it kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Kalyan Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Um, had a lot of listener feedback for you, Rebecca, about podcasts oh. for your mom. I, yes. I sent you one. There'll be more coming. Oh, so good. I, I did want to thank you for that. Enough that I'm not going to round them up in the show notes. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do it. That's what Google is for. Rebecca's, it's Rebecca's podcast. <laughs> I will forward the things that people sent for her. If we get really desperate for a show some week, it can be, here are all the podcasts. That people yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> knowing knowing how we will make uh, a mountain out of Moha about anything, I'm not sure we're going to get that desperate. Uh, <laughs> For sure, but a lot of a lot, a lot of NPR kind of wrecks. I, mm-hmm. I did appreciate the people who said, "I am sixty, I am seventy, I'm from yes. the Midwest." That was These very are my cool. bona fides. I That's did appreciate right. that also. Yeah, and my does mom, your mom I, like humor? Does she like to laugh? Oh, does she like comedies? That's one person asked about this. A sitcom, but probably she likes a sitcom, but she, she probably would not listen to like the podcasts that are basically people doing stand-up i don't right think that's no her, i don't think i don't think, think that's that her, jam. her jam either either i was guessing about that um as well but thank you so much and i think um rebecca's mother's podcast life <laughs> will be as rich as it could possibly be yes uh, i will i will let you all know if she gets into podcasts and if so which ones are the favorites we can do an update there yeah little seuss follow-up um some people a couple people wrote in to say well you know, one thing you guys didn't talk about is these books is part of the historical record. And, you know, we want to have these books on the record so that we can know what Dr. Seuss actually did and perspectives mm-hmm. from a different time. To which I say, okay, sure, but there's pl- these books have been in print in, for 60 years. Right. We're not going to run out of copies. <laughs> yeah, They're I, there. I, They're, don't worry about this. Also... You don't need to read racist books to learn about racism. Go read Stand from the Beginning. Go read actual books that gives you some context. Reading anti-Semitic, racist representations of people teaches you nothing that you didn't already or shouldn't have already known that some people were racist. I don't know what to do with that. That's not interesting. There, we don't owe those books a reading of them, like preserving them for historical record because they're, they're racist. A, there's plenty of books out there. B, Read other books to learn about racism. Yeah, I was listening. I was going to bring up that exact point because I was listening to a podcast called Left Right Center. That's uh-huh. a political. It's a political show that sounds like exactly what it is. Um, last week, and the commentator from the right said basically the same thing of like, well, but you know, eBay shouldn't have restricted resale of those because like restricting the secondary market of a thing like this really could cut off the historical record. And I had the moment of like, that's interesting. And then the commentator said, and you know, like it was interesting when Germany restricted the secondary market for Nazi paraphernalia in Germany. It was like, you know what? We still know the Holocaust happened. We don't need to be able to sell Nazi paraphernalia. We don't need these books to like, to be able to stay in circulation for us to remember that racism was and is a thing. And there was a nice follow-up piece this week that we, we can just link to in the show notes in The Guardian that provided some historical context and other examples of where beloved yeah. properties for young That's people, right. including the Hardy Boys and the Nancy Drew series, which debuted in 1927 and 1930, respectively, were updated to remove terms that seemed fine, I guess, at the time in 1927 Mm -hmm. and 1930, but that over time were understood to be racist and derogatory. And, you know, that that's fine. This is progress. It's what should happen. And if those properties, estates, I guess, decided that they wanted to just take new Nancy Drew books off the market because it was so pervasive, that would be their prerogative as well. I think I'm still on board unpublished oh absolutely (laughs) and you know once they come into the public domain in whatever year they're gonna then Mm -hmm. you can do whatever go read your racist dr seuss books that literally no one cared about until eight days ago right (laughs) literally no one cared about until eight days ago we should also drop in the link jess Plummer did a wonderful parody for us at book riot called the day children's literature died that is written in the style of dr seuss about the um, very weak arguments that are being made in, in this yeah. case. I saw, I think it was Matt Iglesias's, um, has a sub stack, which I don't subscribe to, but I saw it got linked to a free 
piece he did on Dr. Seuss from a, this isn't a free speech issue, it's an intellectual property issue, which I thought was pretty interesting, like, like mm. saying, you know, if you're really concerned about the historical record for this sort of stuff, let's shorten the the copyright laws rather than death plus 75 years, yeah, 30 years after the publication or some other shortened window. And I don't know where I saw this stat, so I apologize, I can't link to it, but something like... Um, out of the 10,000 books that were published in 1934, 170 of them are still in print. <laughs> Which, frankly, is what, more than I might have guessed. It's what, a tenth of a percent? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wait, yes, yeah, yeah. some people who wrote a book in 1934 would lose out on royalties but most of them wouldn't if you shortened the intellectual property um, or if you if you scaled back the copyright that you mm-hmm. get protection from there. The other take that I like really is how this is a freedom of speech issue. Um, the Nash, it's one of these anti-censorship groups that sometimes becomes an Ouroboros of logic about like, <laughs> That's you so know, very real. Yeah. <laughs> like where it's like the, the claim, they, they were like, they were sort of against this decision by the Seuss Institutes, which is the owner of the copyright from the Seuss estate, as far as I can understand. So basically, the Anti-Censorship League was saying, we're so against censorship that you must say everything you've ever said forever. (laughs) Otherwise, you're being censored. That's how we're so in favor of freedom of speech that you have to say, you have to publish and make, you have to publish profit from, sell, or otherwise disseminate and make publicly available works for you which you have copyright forever until you no longer do it. That's how, that's, how, that's how in favor of freedom of speech we are, that you must always say everything you've ever said. That seems like a terrible plan. <laughs> I mean, they didn't put it in those terms, but that's the logical extension yeah, of yeah. people who own the... Either you have the... Either they have the rights over the intellectual property or you don't. I think that's a much interest, more interesting mm-hmm. argument than this is a freedom of speech issue. Dr. Seuss is dead. Dr. Seuss, well, Theodore Geisel has no freedom of speech problems. Right. It is it is especially interesting, I think, as an IP question and essentially around when does a work become into, come into the public right. domain and how does copyright work? But this is like genuinely not an available example as a freedom of speech question because the entity deciding to unpublish yeah. the work owns the work like this is not a decision from anywhere else this is the equivalent to like ground it for ourselves of like deleting a blog post you wrote a long time ago exactly Exactly. (laughs) you're allowed to delete your old blog post you're allowed to delete your own your old tweets and as we've Mm -hmm. seen it's advisable to do that as your thinking evolves because if old evidence of thinking or language that you now have evolved beyond is available publicly, it will be found and used against you by people who are trying to do exactly that. So I want to normalize entities, authors, public figures, all of us being allowed to publicly evolve in our thinking and do what we want with the old records of the old thoughts that are no longer helpful. Yeah. It is so fascinating to think about that the Seuss Enterprise or any estate, the author Conan Doyle estate, remember suing Netflix because Sherlock Holmes had feelings, uh, you know, these kinds of things where they essentially not only hold the copyright to these works, but then can be activists for how they were used, portrayed. Like, that's actually interesting to me that there's Mm -hmm. this is the non-authorial legal entity that doesn't just have the right to sell the works, but then can put it on, take it off pursue claims against people's representations and by extension, meaning basically make arguments about the property, which seems extra, like an extra judicial power given to people who own (laughs) copyright of dead. Like I don't have a a very strong um, feeling about the length of copyright for creative works. I know this is one of those situations where authors, of course, they would like to keep it as long as they can of stuff because who knows, it might get made into a Netflix thing in 2098 and I want my (laughs) grandkids to benefit from that. I'm not sure about that. I guess on the whole, you and I have come down on the part of not only do things in the public domain not um, suffer when they're adapted, readapted, reimagined, but actually only grits them into higher cultural circulation Mm -hmm. 
Um, the best thing that ever happened to Sherlock Holmes as a cultural document is be going in the public domain. I think yeah, the same I've... thing probably for Jane Austen or Shakespeare or, you know, a whole a whole work. You know, it's interesting that because of white supremacy over time, we don't have a huge catalog of famous IP from people of color, but someday that'll change, and that will be super mm-hmm. interesting to see as that well. That will be. Yeah, I've been watching the second season of Dickinson and thinking about that. Like, yeah. this is weird and trippy, and it's cool and fun to watch, and how many young people are watching this, or older people even, and going to Emily Dickinson's work that would not have right. discovered it without this different take on who this person was. Yeah. So anyway, that's... I continue to be fascinated by the fascination with this Dr. <laughs> Seuss story. I saw an interesting, um, someone did a chart of the coverage on, I think it was Fox News of Dr. Seuss, whatever, versus the stimulus package. And they <laughs> talked more about the Dr. Seuss story than the stimulus package rolling through Congress, which is yeah. a wild, you but also what? doesn't surprise me in how I understand cultural politics to work online these days. Yeah, I was going to say, the the women who host the Pantsuit Politics show were talking about it last week, and they made a really helpful distinction of, you know, the stimulus package is a policy conversation. Mm -hmm. This Dr. Seuss situation, we're just talking about communications. Like, this is, are you going to spend your political time and capital working on policy, or are you more concerned about communications and messaging and just, like, riling people up and getting them on your side, but not discussing the policy? And that was a very helpful distinction to me to hear phrased in that way. And also, I think we know it when we see it. Like, you know when someone is just out doing a communications moment or you know their comms team was like this will be cool like one one of the senators was it mccarthy who spent time like sitting down reading green eggs and ham mm-hmm. on fox news like this is not about policy this is <laughs> that's not, not no it's not this about is policy. not about anything even related no. to your job like could you go into that chamber and maybe vote on something please um and as citizens that's a thing that i want us to pay attention to like not only is this dr seuss thing 100 percent not about censorship (laughs) it's not political this is not a political question and it's not about policy and our elected officials shouldn't be spending any of the time we pay them for talking or if it what what policy would mccarthy propose that would change that you would force the Seuss Enterprise to to publish yeah, well, the book, right? Well, and that's it's so absurd and so yeah. separate from policy that it I'm, hasn't even occurred to anyone else to ask that question. Like, how is this connected to your policy? It's just on its face not. I, I guess the argument you would make is there there are works of literature so important that they need to be in the public domain because otherwise woke leftists are going to keep us from these racist books. I mean, saying it out loud is, of course, fun Mm -hmm. for me to do um, in its own way. But I I don't have fun. Have fun with that legislation. I'm sure it won't backfire. Be no unintended consequences of these sorts of things. And you're right. I think that's a a scoring political points. You can score political points about things that aren't policy, and that's, that's what's happening here. For the people who care so much about that people have access to racist uh, Dr. Seuss. The, like the number to 20 six. through 24th draft picks of the most interesting <laughs> right. Dr. To Seuss the books. Six Dr. Seuss books that no one could name last week. <laughs> yeah, right. That no one could name last week. And I could name maybe two of them. And I've looked at this story way more than I care <laughs> right. to admit right now. And I still don't care. Okay. So enough of that feedback follow up. Thank you for writing in. Um, let's do another sponsor and get to new news. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal. Join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. 
Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes. But with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for new talent for We Deserve Monuments. And We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes and Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Norman Jester passed away this week, the age of 91. Maybe you're online in the book world. If you don't, if you're not, I would wager that you don't know that name, maybe, but you do know The Phantom Tollbooth, of which he was the author. The Phantom Tollbooth, of which I think we have talked about before, as one of the last sort of modern children's canon kinds of books not to have a bad adaptation made of, or a good one for that mm. matter. Um, the Phantom Toolbooth, which is a book I loved as a kid. Jane Mount was on um, Reading Lives, um, pour one out for that, talking about that being one of her favorite books as a kid. Jane Mount of the Ideal Bookshelf. Or, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Yes, Ideal Bookshelf and the Bibliophile Book, which is a really good gift book, I should mention there. But a great book nerd, nerdy kids book. There's a lot of math in it. There's a lot of puzzles. And I wonder, I'd be curious to hear from listeners out there where it falls in the pecking order of books you liked as a kid. Because it came out in kind of a weird time. Like, it's not a classic classic, um, like Anne of Green Gables or something like that. But it's also not the new wave of the ascendancy of middle grade and young adult children's books. It's not of the um, Harry Potter uh, or, you know, similar kinds of, it's not even of like Ramona or Judy Bloom or Beverly Clearly. It's somewhere below that in terms of stature. And I've got some theories about why, but I'd rather hear from listeners first before pontificating about it, which will mark a first for me, I guess. (laughs) I should write this down somewhere. I don't know where that goes. Um, Rebecca, do you, I don't think you've read the Phantom Toll, but I don't think I you have, have just, you, you DM me to say, do you have feelings about, it's like, I like the book. Do I have feelings about Norman Jester? Not necessarily. I, if you asked me who wrote the Phantom Toll, it would have taken me a minute, I guess is another way mm. of putting it. I think I would have gotten there, but it would have taken me a minute. To get yeah. This is one that just slipped through my childhood reading. And while yeah. you were rattling off all those other names of authors and popular childhood books just now, I was like, yep, read all of those. Yeah, read somehow- all those. That's exactly. I think, I think that experience is fairly common, even among people who like books like we do. Yeah, it just slipped through. Um, I'd be interested from folks who have revisited or read it recently. Like, does that hold up if you? I would like to know that as well. As an adult, maybe I should. I should answer this question for myself. Hmm. Um, I'm curious if I would be able to. Would the experience translate if you're coming to it for the first time as a you know, woman of a certain age? Yeah, I, I, (laughs) I don't remember. Again, I didn't read it with this lens. It's been a long time since I've read it. I think I did read it as like a high school kid because I was like, oh, the Phantom Tool. I love that book, and I remember Mm -hmm. liking it again. Okay. I was not looking for cultural landmines, shall we say. And I've been, I've thought about my kids are getting close to the right age and maybe Ames, my oldest is, but it's a good book for people who like science, who like puzzles, who are, you know, nascently intellectuals, wrong thing, but they like ideas. They like to think about stuff. 
um, which a, a lot of kids who like books mm-hmm. are. And I'd, I've been holding off on getting a copy because I'm like, I didn't know. And I probably, should, maybe we could, we could think about this as a future segment, reading the Fandom Toll Booth and see, is, should it be, could it be resuscitated? I don't know. There was a like 1970s animated version made that I remember watching as a kid. That was very strange. It made a strange book feel even more strange. And it affected me, but I'm not sure I could say I liked it. <laughs> so I'm not going to recommend mm-hmm. that adaptation. It's out there. But it does seem primed as we're getting into, we're now adapting books Stephen King wrote with other people. So certainly someone somewhere has the rights to Phantom Tollbooth and why it's not a movie right now or an adapted limited series or whatever form is best fits for it. I don't know. Um, but an unusual book, an outlier in the in the way we talk about kids' books, um, I think it came out in 64, 65 which is also a pretty strange time for children's lit. It was after the Susian boom of like, oh my God, we need our kids to be able to read young. Let's get them primers. Between that and what would come a little bit later, much later in the form of Judy Bloom, right? Which is 80s, 70s and 80s that was 70s, ascendant. 70s, yeah. Um, so maybe it was the the wrong time. I don't know. I don't know. But let's let's come back to that in some form. Even if the form of listener feedback telling me actually you're an idiot and everyone who's anyone has ever read Phantom Tollbooth and you're wrong, and Rebecca's underread and let's fix that. That's that's not right. But I don't know what kind of feedback I'm going to hate that we're going to get about that. I'm sure we'll figure it out. If only we could figure out how to make a Gmail filter for. Yeah. Will we hate this? Siri, will I hate this? <laughs> Oh, there he goes. Gosh, can't even joke about it. My, my watch is trying to show me something. My kids are enjoy this because every now and again, it will, it being the thing that I keep on my wrist in the form of a digital computer that mostly works, except when it tries to do stuff proactively. Like the other day, we were reading a book together that had nothing to do with what I'm about to say. And it just showed me a, a portrait of George Washington on my watch for some reason. Like, I have no idea why. <laughs> It's like suddenly it's like, here is a picture of George Washington. I'm like, that's weird. Yeah. Our Um, sentient puck will do that sometimes when like Bob and I are talking about something and I'll be like, maybe we should Google it. And then the puck just does that. Like, and it starts talking to us about whatever. I'm like, wait, I didn't ask you. (laughs) No, I didn't ask you that either. Um, On the other hand, it can be hilarious just to see (laughs) what it's going to think I'm trying to talk about any given most. So fairly well, Norman Juster, a... A singular contribution to the world of books and reading, and one that maybe, maybe sometime will have its moment. This, the sun will shine on the back porch again someday of Phantom Tollbooth, but um, maybe there is something in there that there's a reason it's not being adapted uh, for there. Uh, let's do a second sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. 
to get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Um, as we surmised or wondered about, I guess, Amazon workers in other states are being inspired by United efforts in Alabama. This is in the Washington Post. Anything else to say about this? The link in the show notes is always bookride.com slash listen. I you know, advise looking at these kinds of things. Anything here that you were particularly interested in, Rebecca? No, I think I just wanted to drop it in as a like, yep, that's the thing that Amazon is afraid will happen if this is successful mm. is happening. Uh, it's interesting to see this is coverage in the Washington Post, which of course is owned by Jeff Bezos. So that's just a layer of, I don't know, I find that amusing um, to see that occur. Glad that they're covering it. And if you want to go a little deeper into it, this is a good article to go into. But um, nice to have that confirmation and get some quotes from people who are participating in this or uh, there's. Uh, folks particularly in Seattle and New York, then also Canada and the UK, but um, Seattle and New York talking about um, their past efforts or the reasons they've been discouraged um, from trying to unionize in the past and what seeing this going on in Alabama is doing to reignite that desire and also really reignite the hope that it might work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that train... I feel like it's going to gather some steam. Yeah, I think I'm, I have landed in the place of um, may your efforts succeed, Alabama warehouse workers. Oh, yeah. Anyone who wants yeah, to be yeah. in a union, yep. get in a union, I guess, is where I stay. If you don't, great. That's yeah. fine. But if you do, please do. Uh, yeah. So anyway, next story, we're into the school boards doing stuff, school districts doing stuff. Um, this is uh, Austin well, this is a KVUE, which I believe is a TV station in Austin, mm-hmm. Texas. The Lander School Districts, which I think is around there somewhere, um, the pieces by Marie Salazar, published this week, link in the show notes, about six books that were on reading lists and in classrooms and now will not be because of complaints about inappropriate literature for assigned students' ages. I think... Of of the book of the kind of contro- controversy we talk about, this one I think is the one I'm most interested in because we all feel in our guts that if you're four years old, there's things you shouldn't be reading. It's probably not a great idea. And by the time you're 19, for most people, I think we'd agree that everything that's out there is kind of on the table. Where in the middle of that does the line <laughs> fall around? What is a mess? And I'm glad I don't have to do this for a living. Yeah, and Rebecca, what was your sense of this kind of you know, this discussion? Is- this is one of those cases where the books that were removed are not required reading. They no. are books that are on a, I think they call it book club reading list. And it's a list of 15 books and the students pick one that interests them mm-hmm. from that list each semester. So you can rule out 14 others based on whatever your personal Yep. interests and values are. Um, and there are parents who are just upset that these op- options are being made available to any children whatsoever. I very much fall on the side of trust educators to know yes. um, what are appropriate choices for reading levels and content. And, you know, like we put beloved on required reading lists for like 15 year olds. And that is a difficult book in a million different ways. And I support educators challenging Mm -hmm. students to read that um, and guiding them through it appropriately the really eyebrow raising part of this story is unbelievable stuff you can you can find the video online and i recommend it it is a trip is that one of the parents um, involved in this attempt or in this effort um, is particularly upset about in the dream house by carmen maria machado which is a really incredible memoir about an abusive relationship that she experienced with another woman and each like segment or entry of it is told as a different genre it's really phenomenal just like as a work of art but to protest the content which includes a scene in which the two women who are sexual partners are using an adult toy the parent brought a giant hot pink adult toy 
and like plopped it on the table in the meeting, like waved it around. And, and the walls the came table. tumbling down because and this she... woman brought a giant dildo out. And look, it's like Excalibur. She's, she's like, this is what we're making our children read as she like whips it out of her yeah. bag and goes on a rant that somehow also lands on the bingo card of talking about Jeffrey Epstein. Like it's... Kind of amazing, but also very unsurprising if you are following stories like this yeah. at all. Um, it, that's a challenging book. There are certainly high, there are certainly, I would think, 17 and 18 year old high school students who have had experiences with intimate partner violence and would benefit mm-hmm. from knowing that they're not alone or who have witnessed it or would find affirmation of their queer identities and an exploration of this type of content. Um, and I applaud a teacher. I think it's a really brave choice for a teacher to put on a list because it is challenging in many ways. I cannot, I could not have dreamed up the scenario in which a parent who's mad about it is waving a, a giant pink dildo around. It's very <laughs> Field of Dreams <laughs> r- boat rocker energy coming out of it, this. It is. And there, the, the slippery soap argument is interesting because, like, mm-hmm. there is, you know, I, again, I don't know if it's if she's actually how how what efforts this woman to get to to get uh, this particular <laughs> object that is being represented. Like how you know how how faithful is her adaptation? Let's put it that way for what's going on in the book. But like, okay, so the book includes sex toys, right? And. Yeah, it's. I don't. I mean, if they're teenagers, it's kind of like the absence situation. They're they're gonna have sex. They know. They're also, thinking about right, it all the time. It's, they, it's out there. They know about it. These teenagers live in it. the world and on the internet. They they know dildos exist. I think the fear here is not that it's going to be bad for them. It's that they're going to seek it out, right? That's that's the thing that they're not being said. It's like if there was which a is, content warning on each of these books, which maybe I think is, or mm-hmm. warning is too bad because that assumes the thing is bad. But like some context, you're picking from these books. Here's a little thing about if you don't want to read about violence in a relationship, that might be a reasonable thing to let students pick for themselves. Sure. If yes. you put on there, there's mention of a sex toy. The percentage of people who choose that book is going to go <laughs> through the roof. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's nothing like a memoir about a really painful, abusive relationship to make a person want to try the things in the pages of that book. Like that argument of of like this book is going to make kids want to do these things, especially falls apart in the face of the context that Machado provides in this story or that any story like this provides. Like not only has a book never turned a person gay, but a book about a very awful relationship experience has never made someone be like you know what i think i want to go do that (laughs) you know i'm interested in that can you tell me more about how to be emotionally abused that sounds great um and again like i said i don't think this is the venue for it but it is it is hard to know what's age appropriateness quote unquote i feel like is real and hard to figure out yeah this is i'm not interested to hear especially but (laughs) the, the idea she's so afraid of the dildo Right, of what it means <laughs> that, that she thinks that, she that bringing one. it out is somehow like, I don't know. It's like some kind of evidence out of Area Fifty One of aliens existing. It's like, look how powerful this is. Don't you all immediately accede to my point of view because dildos clearly are bad. That's not thing. I'm, my kids, I think, just heard that because I said that loud, and everyone's. Like, I was working so hard not to say the word dildo because we try to be family friendly, and I am like. Is it my birthday today that the thing I'm getting is you're yelling about dildos on this podcast? But it's just so hilarious. It's so hilarious that... It is... The video is hilarious. really worth a it's watch. Really like, it's really something. It's, yeah. I'm in the point, though, and I think it was Michelle showing me videos of people testifying about evidence of voter fraud whenever that happened in Michigan. Mm. And people were... They were out to see Rebecca Shinsky. They were just yeah. wild and out there about the truth and logic and evidence and what is convincing that I forget sometimes that people really think the thing they're saying matters and is, is evidence and is the, um, the smoking gun. Um, right. But we had in a situation where someone came out and tried to make a case about how dangerous it was for people to even know 
that real people might use sex toys, that we got we to gotta get some books out of these classrooms. I mean, that's what it was about, right? Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. Basically, the argument is if you're 16-ish, you cannot read about sex toys. You can't do it. It's, it's very yeah, bad for and, you. It's and very, really, very bad for you. And the, the fact that the book is by a queer woman adds a yeah. layer there. Like, is it the dildo that's the problem or is it the gay that's the problem? Or is it both? Is it the combination? Like, if this had been a sex scene in which a straight couple were using a toy, mm. I would bet this person would still object, but not yes. nearly as stringently. Yeah, I, I, I really... Some people really are out there doing stuff. That's People do things, I guess, <laughs> to quote the great Don Draper, one of our favorite <laughs> quotes. Our, right, people do things. People do things. That can be our new segment title for these events. Yes, people very much do so. Things. People do things. Uh, let's take one last break, and then we get to talk to gifts to us from the world gifts. of adaptations coming yes. up. I wish I was more excited about this first. Tell me why I am not excited about Peacock, which is NBC Universal streaming service, I guess, planning a Robert Langdon spinoff series not starring um, <laughs> Tom, Tom Hanks, and also not really Dan Brown's not doing it. Yeah, he it's it's other writers' room with it's IP. It's an IP shell game here. I'm sure Dan Brown will be involved as an executive producer. I think that's a I'm cashing them checks situation. Um, I mean, make that money, Dan Brown. Yeah, I, I'm sure his um. Horses for mistresses. Soon to be estranged ex-wife is very glad to see this because she'll get a piece of this. Good for her. Um, Here's Dan Brown's statement. I'm absolutely thrilled to be working with Ron and Brian again. This is Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, also executive producers. I don't... That executive producer title is so... What of their sensibility is actually going to come down into this? I have no idea. We've all wanted to make the law symbol for some time, and now I'm grateful to CBS Studios, blah, 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 for joining forces to make this project reality. Here are some other people that I'm thanking that have written a phenomenally captivating script, Dan Dworkin and Jay Betty, I guess. Just saying I'm cool with this happening. That's basically what Dan Brown is saying. I'm sure the check was sufficiently large. (laughs) Rebecca, why am I not more excited about this? Because it's like the most boring possible version of a Robert yeah. Langdon and adaptation. Why is that? Well, I mean, for, Tom Hanks is the perfect Robert Langdon, but as we've talked about extensively, <laughs> um, it's hard to convey like the joy and wonkery of a Dan Brown yes. book on screen because so much of it is just the stuff that's happening in Robert Langdon's head. I also think that if Ever there were a property that is ripe for being a really fun series, but could really use some like gender bending and race oh, bending. Yes, and Roberta Langdon. Create... Yeah, Roberta Langdon would be wonderful. Oh, or mm. you know, I'm like just another white guy in a tweed coat solving puzzles. Yeah, I guess is not. It's just like not a thing that I can get terribly excited about. And yeah, dollar store Sherlock Holmes is not what we want out of this. I don't think <laughs> you know that's not what we're looking for here. Um, exactly. What is it that There's... makes the brand Dan Brown the Dan Brown? And I think it is the culture stuff, as we've talked about before. Like that national treasure then tried to rip off into mm-hmm. into two extremely, extremely, <laughs> extremely stupid movies. Movies whose signal function to me is to appreciate how much worse the Da Vinci Code could actually be, frankly, in a different situation. Um, but yeah, I guess young, young Bobby Langdon, I don't know, man. I, I guess yeah, I, maybe I don't want Dan Brown anymore. Is that what I'm really saying, Rebecca? Is I'm, I'm out? Am I out? I don't know. I don't know. I've been wondering where I was going to land like the next time that there's a Dan Brown book. I I just I have been thinking about this. Like there are there's no reason that Robert Langdon needs to be a white guy. No. You know, like None. there's no, there's nothing in the context of this story that's like obviously for whatever reason this character has to be a middle-aged white guy or now he's like younger in in the series and it could be so much more interesting with the kind of character that we haven't seen before because robert langdon on a series is just like dr house but talking about art history not even with that much edge though right i mean that's a thing it's like he's like a a wobbly (laughs) play-doh avatar of like wiki knowledge (laughs) 
right like Hugh Laurie at least yeah has a little sizzle happening Mm -hmm. and that's something that nobody has gotten right in the Dan Brown adaptations get either is that on the page Robert Langdon is like a little bit sexy and for his great I dispute this till the end of the earth but you continue to say it's a thing but okay yes I agree (laughs) it's a apparently we're supposed to think that let's put it that way (laughs) yeah we're supposed yeah we're supposed to believe that these you know young smart women with their swinging ponytails are gonna fall for Robert Langdon so he must be giving off like a little bit of something and Tom Hanks does not sell that for me i'm like well established nor does he try really nor i mean does he i think try. he knows yeah, he's, he's like this is not gonna he, be yeah, cool we right. don't want he's, this yeah, out this of this is not yeah. gonna work like if you're doing a younger robert langdon you right. might try to sell the like sex appeal a little bit more but this is just not working for me mm-hmm. it's just not i'm not excited however in other adaptations <laughs> wait wait can we stop you right there real quick i give you a choice oh, yes. you get you get mm-hmm. to pick this series starring ashley zuckerman from succession which i hear is great i know nothing about it whatever um you get you, you this series, or you get you get the band back together for a movie adaptation of the origin Dan Brown novel. You get you get you get Tom, you get Ron Howard. You just get another in the trilogy of the Tom Hanks Dan Brown books. Which do you pick right now? If you have one of them is going to come in the existence, you get to decide which of these door, which of these portals to the multiverse opens up, and one of them comes forth. Which one do you pick? I guess I'm taking getting the band back together for a movie I I because I I know how mediocre it will be. And sometimes that's the thing you want. Like it will be predictable. Right. And lower ceiling, funny. higher floor. Whereas this yeah. series, I think, has a higher ceiling and a, a lower floor. It could be real, mm-hmm. real bad. It could be real mm-hmm. bad. It could be real bad. It could. Succession is great, though. <laughs> Whereas Origin will probably just be kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> In things that historically have been, to be honest, kind of bad, Toni Morrison adaptations, of which there's only one, um, George C. Wolfe is going to take a crack at Song of Solomon in a limited series. We were DMing about, or just talking in Slack about mm-hmm. this a little bit earlier today. I think we're on the same page thinking, well, if you're going to try one, is that where we are with this? Yeah, I think if you're going to try a Toni Morrison adaptation, Song of Solomon and Sula are mm-hmm. the most the most straightforward of us an oeuvre yeah. that is not straightforward. And Song of Solomon lends itself to a bigger kind of universe for story than Sula right. would have. Though I would love a Sula adaptation, a mm-hmm. good one. I think this is a smart choice if you're a director that wants to work with a Toni Morrison mm-hmm. piece. And if anybody is going to take a swing at it and make me not just immediately nervous about yes. it, I think yes. George C. Wolf is an excellent he has an excellent shot or as good a shot as anybody has of making a good adaptation of Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Playwright which I think is helpful for literary mm-hmm. stuff where you think maybe as much about language as anything if you're a playwright. Um, he's from the Mid-South, I think, which is mm-hmm. also interesting. He was born in Kentucky, Frankfort, Kentucky. Um, I'm trying to think. Recently, I mean, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I haven't seen yet, by all accounts, is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he wrote a musical. I'm sure, did he write it or just direct it? I'm not sure, but about Jelly Roll Morton called Jelly's Last Jam. Uh, directed Angels in America, which is, yeah. I mean, also a very, very stylized, complicated book, or not book, property, play, I guess it's a play, mm-hmm, that moves play. between the somewhat surreal and the real at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, bringing, the, bringing the funk uh, is also did also directed a version of Wild Party, Lackawanna Blues, just a lot of interesting stuff, um, from classical to new. You know, he's done Shakespeare to Brecht. Um, like, I, yeah. I don't know who I'd pick over this, right? Yeah, I, I can't think of anybody. It's a there are a lot of characters in Song of Solomon, so it should also be a rich opportunity for showcasing black talent. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in casting as that starts to happen. Um, yeah. But 
I think no matter what, we're going to be, you know, a little nervous about any Toni Morrison adaptation because the work is just so singular and it's hard so to tough. hard to imagine adaptations. But I feel as good about one, the potential of one, as I think mm. I could with this setup. Well, and and sometimes people we get I can get bent out of shape or like maybe bent out of shape is a little too strong, but like tied up in knots about thinking what makes something something that would be good or not good for adaptation. Mm. And I think what I've come down on it on is works that are super, super language intense. And a lot of that language is not dialogue are harder because film is not a language medium unless it's dialogue. If it's a language medium, you can have a lot of fun. That's why Shakespeare can be so great on film because it's a language medium, you know, it's a spoken language, dialogue heavy, or something like a Tarantino or a Wes Anderson, or, you know, where language is part of the play, so to speak. Where Morrison, it is super amazing language and no one says it. You know, it's not the thing that people say there. In fact, the thing that people say to each other is often really, really dialed back mm-hmm. um, in interesting ways. So how do you translate the language work that Morrison does, who's as good as anyone who's walked God's green earth about creating language art that's not dialogue? How do you make that into a visual experience that works? I think part of the problem of Beloved is you have to make a decision about how to portray Beloved, right, right. on film where there's a lot of ambiguity in the book about, is this a real entity? Is it perceived by different people differently? Does it come in and out of existence? Is it a projections of someone's psyche? Is it really a thing that comes out of the supernatural? And we can, you know, we could spend many, many days talking about that book and many others, what Morrison does, but so much of what makes Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, or makes Paradise, Paradise, or makes Tar Baby, Tar Baby, is the narration, the description, the other things that happen in and around. And how do you pull that into a screen? I don't know. That's that's not my job. Good luck. I would love... (laughs) No one wants a good version of this more than I do. Or I'm sure there are people, but I would love to see a great version of this. I'm just not sure how it's going to happen, Rebecca. I don't know. Do you think this is going to be good? We both said... I can't think of a better chance for it to be good. That is different than saying we think it's going to be good, I guess. <laughs> I think it has a, well, I, I think it has a strong chance. I, I'm totally willing to believe that it will be good. That, that's, that's, that's equivocating garbage. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, how are we supposed to know? Well, that's what I, you've, see, you've seen movies. You've read books. I don't think it'll be a disaster. Okay, well, that's something. I I'll, it, take that. I th- I'll take that. I'll take that. I don't think it'll be a disaster. I think it will be better than the beloved adaptation. Okay, low bars, but okay. We're at least talking about real things. Here's here's it. You have a crisp one hundred dollar bill, crisp <laughs> oh, <no>. one, <laughs> and you have to bet on either it will not be good or it will be good, and you yourself are going to be the arbiter of whether or not it's good. <laughs> Which side good. of the line? Well, it's going to be better than it is bad. It'll That's be not what I asked you. <laughs> you you asked it. You said you're you're going on. It's going to be good. <sighs> yeah, I think I take the under. I think I take the under. I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I find everything interesting, so that's a low bar to me. <laughs> but is it going to be good? I, you know what? How about this? I'm going to take the under on these until I see one really great Morrison adaptation. If this is the first mm. one, I'll reset my expectations. Okay. But we had Beloved, which was a noble effort, and no one's tried since, and there's probably a reason for that. So George C. Wolfe has taken his Ma Rainey's Black Bottom currency out there and saying, this is what I want to do. I'm guessing that's what's happened here. Because I doubt some exec is like, you know what we should do is take this 800-page book mm-hmm. about an eight-year-old who's still breastfed and, spoiler alert, flies at the end, and let's do that. Let's sign up for that. Tough. Very tough. Very tough. It can be hard to do. Um, there's also no great Faulkner adaptation I should put out there. Which is, that think, is interesting. really difficult to imagine. Morrison's no more hard than that. <laughs> Faulkner's no harder than Morrison. 
I don't think. Um, I think as an experienced things- adapter of film and tv as you know right right more things happen in tony morrison books than happen in faulkner um okay sure (laughs) on that note (laughs) how about in uh as they lay dying when someone imagines their mom is a giant dying catfish right (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) if you're mad that we're spoiling faulkner like you're welcome yeah do you think it'll be more or less successful than giant, getting out a giant dildo and trying to convince people? <laughs> Let, well, Jeff, what is less successful than that? <laughs> All right. As always, you can shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. Find links to the stories we talked about this week at bookriot.com slash listen. If you want to have read Clara in the Sun before you have a chance to hear us talk about it, time's a ticking. Um, we're recording on 325, or is that when that episode comes out? I can't we're remember. We're recording that. on 325. The show comes out that first The next week, that, yeah. Yeah. That, that next day the Monday, or something like that. Yeah, the Monday, the Monday after. after March 25th. Yeah, the 28th or something like that. Yeah. And, um, and then we're going to soon, not too long, we're going to get into bonus episode season coming up in May. Uh, we've decided to do a spring, a, a summer preview. We're going to do one of those. I think we have a book nerd movie club. Is that on the docket? Do you remember off the top I of your think, head? What I think it is. We're gonna yeah. do? I think we're circling. Speaking of Field of Dreams, I think we might be cir- circling that. We want to do that in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to do a, a mom's dad's grads recommendation Mom's dad's and grad show. Yeah. That we'll do as a bonus rather than taking up one of our weekly news spots. Uh, yeah. And if there's other things you're into that we've done before, let us know. We're due for deals, deals, deals. I got a couple of real humdingers to mm, talk to you about. Of thing, okay. Real books that actual people are writing and buying and are going to try to sell to other humans, uh, presumably, Great. is what's going to happen. There's some good ones there. Uh, I've got some history of a history of X and N objects. I really need to talk to you and let the internet know exist. I'm very excited <laughs> for these. Um, so, all right, Rebecca, thank you so much. We'll talk thank to you later. You. Take care of yourselves out there, folks. Yeah, hang uh, in take there. Take care of yourselves. Right.